Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for New Comics on Sale, November 18, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. H&M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. On Marvel's Pull List, we talk about all the new comics that come out every week. We talk about old comics sometimes in our reading club section. This week, we're going to have a really fun one with Wolverine and X-Force writer Ben Percy. We'll get into more of that later. Tucker, we got a lot of books to cover this week. We do. I think we should just dive right into it. All right. I love it. Uh, We are starting with Amazing Spider-Man number 53. It is written by Nick Spencer with art by Mark Bagley, uh, inks by John Dell, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is Last Remains part four. This has been a big, big chapter in the story that Nick Spencer is telling. I love the opening of this book so much. I think it is the kind of perfect tonal entry into the story that he's telling with specific regard to Kindred. And there's a, a sequence without any dialogue, without any words, that is a little bit unusual. And it, I love its silence. And because of that, I don't want to talk too much about what happens in it. But it's another entry in here that is shocking and exciting and I think is encapsulating not just the confrontation between Spidey and Kindred that's going on right now, but a kind of war that Spidey has been fighting in multiple fronts, in multiple ways, emotional and literal for a really long time. And when you finally feel the kind of base notes of what Nick is playing here, it really, really reverberates. And it's just, it it never ceases to inspire me as a reader. You know, I just, I want to keep coming back for more. It's really, really great stuff. Tucker. We got to remember that's right. Two big things for now moving forward. Picks of the week. Mm-hmm. Bell is back <laughs> and superlatives because we have to give out our pulleys. And with that in mind, I also wanted to address a tweet that we got from one Karis Pollard at a Karis Pollard who said important Wednesday question. Is it hashtag pulley P-U-L-L-I-E or hashtag pulley P-U-L-L-Y or even hashtag pulley P-U-L-L-E-Y for the award system? Or is it a Pulitzer? Come on. Which, come on. That's that too good. good. <laughs> Our producer Jorge <laughs> likes pulley I-E, which I like as well. Tucker, where do you land? Uh, I like I-E as well. I got to say, I mean... Pulitzer is next level stuff. I gave a, a classic LOL when I read that yep. from Karis. That is good stuff. Um, on this one, my instinct is to say it's somewhere between most disturbing and surprising moment of the week. And that's a big one. I mean, that's 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 saying a lot because we have a lot of those kind of things in the old oh, yeah. uh, Mary Marvel marching society. But uh, that's I'll go there because there are some big beats here in this Uh, in this issue. There are like three moments uh, minimum in this book alone that are like, whoa. Agreed. Uh, All right, let's move on to the next book, which is Avengers Marvel's Snapshots, number one, written by Barbara Randall Kessel, pencils by Staz Johnson, inks by Tom Palmer, colors by Jim Charlampitas, and letters by VCs Ariana Marr. For my pulley for this book, it's going to get the meet cute of the week between a cop and a paramedic in New York City, kind of in the 80s-ish, vague Marvel time of it all. But the idea is this is uh, the series is about on-the-ground POVs of the Marvel Universe in the tradition of Marvels. And so you get a really cool look at two people who are just in New York City, 
in a wild time. It's sort of set during the Michelinie, Byrne, Perez, Avengers era. Um, it's a lot of fun. I love Barbara Kessel. She's great. Um, it's good to see her doing uh, Marvel work here and getting little tastes of uh, Wonder Man and Captain Faria and other characters. So definitely check this one out. Oh, yeah. Next up this week, we have Captain America number 25. Uh, we are at uh, this little bit of a landmark moment for what has been an incredible run that I am a big, big fan of. Of course, this issue is by ta Coates and Leonard Kirk with color by Matt Mila. Uh, and then we have a backup story called The Promise, which is by Anthony Falcone uh, and Michael Cho. Uh, and letters throughout are by VCs Joe Caramagna. For the Coates and Kirk team up, story i will give that one like spy infiltration pulley of the week i loved it so much it really captures so perfectly this kind of cinematic feel this is one of those moments where the emotional stakes are so clear and what's happening for each of the characters that we've been invested in for a really long time now is so clear it's so upfront and then the dominoes just fall it is the kind of perfect temperature for a spy story and it just feels so right. And I think that's a huge testament to the vision that I think ta has for this kind of thing. And of course, when you have Leonard Kirk carrying it out, that is a, a big help in hand. Um, and then for The Promise, this kind of secondary story here, this is a really beautiful story. I think if we ever need a check-in on something that taps right into that vein of legacy and heart and honor and the human quality of Steve Rogers, of the person, of Captain America, the moniker, of the history that goes into that. This story somehow does that in such a concise way. It's really, really incredible. I hadn't been familiar with Anthony Falcone's work before this, but I was super impressed here uh, and great art throughout that I think the colors and the framing, the shadows embody the words in a really, really nice way, in a way that goes beyond just what they are. It's really, really nice stuff. Yeah, that story gets a pulley for me for the story most needed during a wild time yep. in the U.S. It goes well beyond any politics. It's just a reminder of yeah. Captain America and what he means, and it's freaking great. So Man, great. Michael Cho's art. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Real good. All right, let's keep going. We got Fantastic Four number 26 written by Dan Slott, pencils by R.B. Silva. That's your uh, Stormbreaker right there. Oh, Colors yeah. by Jesus Arbutov and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This one gets my pulley for favorite relationship drama this week. It's all about Johnny Storm, Marvel's longest running himbo, probably. <laughs> yes, you know? more lingo. He is just, woof, <laughs> boy, oh boy. And it's just, he's got like this woman he's soul bound to and then like exes and conversations. And it's really funny in the midst of all kinds of drama. There's some really sad stuff for Franklin Richards in here. I, I'm actually fascinated to see how that plays out and what Dan's big plan is for what to do with Franklin, because if anything, I know Dan Slott thinks in long terms and what he wants to do over time. He's got to have cool plans and big things. And I'm, I'm just excited. I love this book. It's so, so, so good. Speaking of books we love, we're jumping around here. Reminder uh, to line up all the Ten of Swords books towards the end. So the next one in our lineup is Immortal Hulk number 40. It is written by Al Ewing with pencils by Joe Bennett, inks by Roy Jose and Bellardino Bravo, colors by Paul Mouts and Matt Mila, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. You know, 
kind of in a similar way to how Nick Spencer has been able to churn out so many incredible books for ASM, uh, Joe Bennett has been, out of these 40 issues, he has been on a huge alliance share of these books and credit to him, not just for obviously the thing that we drool over every single week, the art itself, but for the work ethic, for the just ability to get in there and be there and make it work. High marks to uh, Joe Bennett as if we uh, needed another reason to love him. Uh, this issue, I think, can be described in four parts. One, of course, is the Hulk. Two is Joe Fixit. Three is Sasquatch. And four, I'll say, is uh, X. I'll leave that one out there. There's a fourth element that makes this really a, a new take. We've encountered Sasquatch, I believe, in this series in the past. Um, there's something different this time around. And of course, it's all brought to you in the wonderful stylings of Al Ewing. Uh, some of the action sequences in here are just unbelievable. There's one thing in particular that we see happen that is like, oh, it's just the coolest. It is so awesome and wow. so much fun. Uh, I loved it. And then just when you think whew, you have a moment to breathe, another amazing, incredible, so exciting thing pops up that I'm just like, I, this one's going to, this one might have me digging through our internal like files to try and get to 41 before it comes out. <laughs> um, that's how excited I am. Uh, uh, you know, it's Immortal Hulk. What else can I say? Great issue. Another great issue is Juggernaut number three, written by Fabian Nicieza, pencils by Ron Garney, colors by Matt Mila, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. This book kind of opens with Juggernaut on trial for his past. I like this era of Kane Marco of like dealing with who he is now and reconciling who he was back then, trying to put all his pieces back together. This one I will give two pulleys to one being the best groove getting back issue of the week uh because this is the issue in which juggernaut gets his groove back like stella and it also tied to that has the sexiest splash page of the week uh because ron garney draws this image of juggernaut like getting powered up uh, and then matt mila colors it and it is just amazing. It's Kane in the armor sparkling around him, like lightning fire all over him, growing big and growing strong again. It is awesome. Garney just crushing this book. Really, really good. Love this issue. Oh, yeah. Next up, we have Marvel's Voices, Indigenous Voices, number one. This issue is comprised of five different stories. The first story in here is called The Watcher, and that is both written and drawn by Jeffrey Verigi. And good lord, I mean, what an entry. This is so unique and so bold in its telling. You can guess the character that it focuses on, but Jeffrey's style is so unique and really unlike anything else. The way that he incorporates not just his very graphic, clean lines, clean colors uh, in terms of how it tells the story, but in terms of how it interweaves with the words that he writes, it is just gorgeous stuff. That is one that's like, get me a poster of that. The next story 
is called Echo Hitting Back. That's written by Rebecca Roanhorse, drawn by Wes Hoyote Alvitre, colored by Lee Lowridge. I was so impressed specifically by Wes Hoyote's art in this. Another one that is so, so unique, really, really, really special stuff. I'm so, so impressed by the work going on here. Just a really, uh, really great story going on overall. The next one's called Mirage Multifaceted. So it's written by Darcy Little Badger with art by Kyle Charles with colors by Felipe Sobrero. Um, another one that, you know, each one of these I think was just such a glorious little bite-sized thing that made me every single time want a whole issue that's dedicated to these things, if not an arc, if not an entire series, because they're just so quick to not only get you into the story, but to get you to connect with these characters emotionally. Throughout all of these, there are characters that you're very, very familiar with. In this one, we, of course, have Danny Moonstar and Wolfsbane involved in here as well. It's just beautiful, beautiful work. And again, emotionally, I think it's very, very powerful. The next story is called Silver Fox, Blue Moon. It's written by Stephen Graham Jones with pencils by David Cutler, inks by Roberto Poggi, and colors by Chris Peter. Another one that I think, you know, when we get to read a book like this, and when you have these stories that are maybe six, eight, ten pages long, you just know that the creators that are coming on board here are just saying... Why hold back? You don't have space to hold back. You don't have time to hold back. You have to get directly into your story. And witnessing the various methods by which these creators, whether it's the writer, whether it's the artist, get you to buy in on a character level, get you to buy in on a story level by either using an image or uh, an idea or historical dynamic that you might be familiar with that allows you to instantly familiarize yourself with the landscape with the characters and then you go from there is really 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 cool this one has my pulley for this issue which is dialogue non-dialogue bit of dialogue of the week i don't want to say what it is but there's one balloon in here that has one thing in it and it is on top of uh, something that will melt your dang heart. I love it so much. And then uh, we have an afterword that is written by Taboo and B. Earl, uh, who, of course, are the writers of the new Werewolf by Night series. And I think this is such a great encapsulation of what this book, Marvel's Indigenous Voices, is about. It's personal to these writers. And I think details the heart that I think personally I, I feel behind the story in Werewolf by Night from what we've read so far. Um, but it also tells the, the kind of personal connection between these two people who have come together and been able to make this connection through this character. It's really, really nice stuff. All together, it adds up to what is something that I think is so vital, so impressive just on that level alone, because the level of artistry going on here is incredible. It's really special stuff. It's a special book. It's one that stands out any week. It's one that I think will stand out when we look back over the course of the year because of how unique it is and the stories that are uh, able to have been told inside of it. Just great stuff across the board. Really great. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's keep moving to Spider-Woman number six, written by Carla Pacheco. 
art by Pere Perez, colors by Frank D'Armada, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Uh, last week, I gave my pulley for scariest badass of the week to Darth Vader. This week, I'm giving it to Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman, because <laughs> she is terrifying in this issue. <laughs> Holy moly. A lot of it is Jessica and Carol Danvers, aka Captain Marvel, traveling through space and fighting monsters and doing stuff to try to help cure spider-woman what's going on with her uh but spider-woman is she's like hopped up on this stuff that is kind of uh necessary to keep her going but it's also killing her at the same time and she's terrified of hurting the people she loves and yet she's lashing out at everything just the way perry draws her eyes throughout this like kind of a little bit mad and terrified um and angry man hell of an issue Oh, yeah. Uh, and next up, we jump over to Star Wars for Star Wars Bounty Hunters number seven. It's written by Ethan Sachs with art by Paolo Villanelli, colors by Arif Prianto, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Whoa! Ethan, what are you doing to my heart, man? Um, this is uh, an issue that focuses in on Valance in a really unique way that we haven't quite seen to this degree in this series so far because we get a glimpse into his past, into his personal life, into not the bounty hunter, but the man, the cyborg, the heart behind it all. It's of course tied up in this great action sequence that is kind of ongoing, this hunt that's happening as you might expect in a book with this title. But the way that Ethan reveals this stuff, you know, it brings me back to Ethan's intro to the Marvel Universe with Old Man Hawkeye, which had some similarly really powerful moments that kind of jump between timelines and was really able to connect on an emotional level in a huge way. Uh, really impressive issue here, really, really unique and I think a standout in this series so far. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next book, which is Swordmaster number 12, written by Xu Xu, art by Gunji, adaptation by Amy Chu, letters by VCs Travis Lanham. This one gets my pulley for most heavy metal imagery of the week with the God of War Chiyu, its skull chained by wood that has been stained by the blood of the people that it killed. Really badass. Also, Every time that that skull shows up in this issue, whether it's like spitting like nasty, weird demon juice or whatever, it rules. It looks so cool and scary and messed up weird. Oh, yeah. Uh, so cool and some somehow unnerving and scary in a similar way. Next up, we have Symbiote Spider-Man King in Black number one. It's written by Peter David with pencils by Greg Land, inks by Jay Lyston, colors by Frank D'Armada, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. What we get inside of this issue was unexpected to me that, uh, you know, when you, you know, we have had the precedence of these symbiote Spider-Man stories, I would expect one thing. And then for the first half of this issue, it is something entirely different. And boy, did I love it. I kind of don't want to talk about which characters uh, are playing big parts in this issue, but they're major, major, major characters. And I'm just talking about the first half of this issue. There are two big players there. And then as we get to the latter half of the story, Symbiote Spider-Man becomes involved, uh, and then others as well. Characters that I would never in a million years would expect to show up in here pop up, and that makes it even more Peter Davidy to me because of what a like grab bag it feels like, but how it just works nevertheless. So much fun. We're early on in King and Black Days, but this has jumped to uh, an early lead in, in some of my favorite tie-in stuff. Yeah. Also, this issue features my Blast Boss, Pulley, yeah. which I 
you you did not mention the character's name, so I will not spoil it. But yeah. we got the blouse boss yeah. in this issue, <laughs> and it's terrific. All right, uh, I'm going to take the next two, Tucker, because I've got a pick of the week coming up soon. But first, yeah. I want to tell you about Venom number 30, which is written by Donny Cates, art by Luke Ross, colors by Jesus Arbertov, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This is the finale to the Venom Beyond storyline, which saw uh, Eddie Brock and his son Dylan transported to a like an alternate dimension, a different universe, one in which uh, a grown-up Dylan, uh, Dylan Brock has sort of connected to Null and taken over almost the entire world. So this is the end of that story. Uh, wild stuff happens here. I don't want to give anything away, but really great moments for uh, Matt Gargan, for Eddie, for Dylan, um, for a bunch of heroes. It's it's really cool. It did not end there's like three endings in this one and it did not end any of them in the way that I expected, which I love. Uh, and this issue gets my pulley of the week for best use of the power of love. Do I mean the song Ooh. or the emotion? <laughs> You'll have to read to find out. And then next is my first-ish pick of the week, which is Widowmakers, Red Guardian, and Yelena Belova. It's a one-shot uh, written by Devin Grayson, pencils by Michele Bendini, ink assist by Elisabetta D'Amico, colors by Eric Arseniega, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Um, this has my pulley for Prison Break of the Week, which is sort of like the main thrust of the storyline as Yelena is going into a Russian prison to deal with some stuff. She's got uh, a bunch of stuff going on this one surprised the hell out of me. I love Devin's work. I love Michele uh, Bandini's work. But I was like, okay, this will be a cool one shot that'll that'll give us some Yelena Belova and Red Guardian action because everybody's excited about Marvel Studios Black Widow. But this one advances so much of what is going on, and I I imagine what we'll see from these characters in the future. You know, Yelena, like we get a sense of what her mission statement is in the Marvel universe in this. And who she is, what she believes in, where she's going. I love that. It like really gives her a very clear picture of her place in the Marvel Universe. One that hasn't quite existed in this way in a while. And that was great. And then giving the Red Guardian back like a, a place. We've seen Red Guardian pop up recently in, in some other places. So this is like putting him back on the stage, how he gets there. I thought this was terrific. The action is awesome. The characters are great. It's funny. It's cool. It's exciting. It's really, really dang good. Hey, speaking of picks of the week, my pick of the week is X-Force number 14, and it is written by Ben Percy and Jerry Duggan with art by Joshua Kassara, colors by Guru EFX, and letters by... VCs Joe Caramagna. Uh, Tucker, real quick, I'm going to co-author this pick of the week with you because <laughs> yeah. I lost my mind with this I issue. do not blame you one bit. There are like five different things that happen in here in five different storylines that each individually would be like the craziest thing that we read this week and the most dramatic. The first of which just being how far the Ten of Swords tournament uh, progresses in this issue. That's one. 
we get these little snippets of the fights between Areco and Krakoa, the champions of each, that progress the tallies of who's winning, who's ahead. And uh, spoiler alert, as has been the case since last week, Araco has the advantage. That's all I'll say. The first major thing that goes down in here, and I don't want to talk about too much about why, but one, Redroot the Forest, such a cool <laughs> character. It actually makes me angry a little bit. The way that all of these X-Men creators have come together and created these characters out of nothing. You know, a year ago, these characters did not exist outside of probably Jonathan Hickman's head. And now here they are being so surprising and at times contradictory, at times complex, everything you want in a great character. They have their own storyline. They have their own things going on. They have their own betrayals to make. They have their own lives to lead. How that intertwines with the champions of Krakoa in this issue in particular, I'll say Captains Avalon and Britain, is just incredible. There's an entire world that we're entering that's new to us. It's certainly new to the X-Men. And when you see the things that are at play that we're not familiar with until they're happening are just incredible. That's what we have for that. And then we have a whole, just when you think like, okay, this issue is going to end. I'm going to flip the last page. We're done. I'm already out of breath. Then we dive back into uh, this ongoing storyline between Storm and Death, which has been so exciting. It is one of those kind of emotional high points, I think, where it just feels like everything is at full speed. The emotion, the art, the pitch of the story overall across series, the crossover in general, it's just hitting that peak where you're like, you just want to eat the pages. You just want to devour it so fast. Obviously, we're huge fans of Josh Guitsara, and uh, of course, he brings it. The colors are beautiful. Guru effects. Everyone is just operating on such a high level here. I could go on for another hour, but I won't. It's so, so special. Uh, yeah. I got a bunch of pulleys for this one. One, yeah. <laughs> best montages of the week. Yep. Just wow. And the fact that we don't get, like, we get these montage moments, and I'm just like, wait, no, I give me a whole book of that scene. Uh, my pulley for panel of the week goes to a panel with Wolverine, Magic, and Gorgon. And uh, Gorgon is disrobing, and I'll <laughs> leave it at that. That is my panel of the week. And uh, Storm, greatest X-Men leader. There's Whoa. like... No yeah. question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, this is good. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, we've got more Ten of Swords for you this week because that was chapter 17. Chapter 18 of Ten of Swords is Hellions number six, written by Zeb Wells, pencils by Carmen Carnero, colors by David Curiel, letters by VCs Ariana Marr. Uh, again, we've got more action from our amazing Stormbreakers in last issue and this issue. This one has my pulley for holy <laughs> fight of the week <laughs> it's a battle with characters that are introduced in this book and i was like i wish they had existed for 20 years and i knew mm -hmm, more about them mm -hmm. and they're wild this also gets a pulley for the friggin sinister action of the week because man i think sinister is just the best he rules so hard and seeing him in here I hate him so much and I love it so, so much. This one is an interesting piece of Ten of Swords because the Hellions are this like side story to everything. The team believes that they're going on a path to help all the uh, the mutants of Krakoa and they've essentially gotten lost and it's 
this is a heartbreaker it's wild if you're getting into hellions because of ten of swords i hope you check out the rest of the issues because it, it's it's the same tone it's just wild we're wrapping it up this week with cable number six this is chapter 19 of ten of swords it's written by jerry duggan with art by phil noto and letters by vcs joe sabino and speaking of sinister we get into it with some sinister action right here we jump into it right at the top with the council with sinister and with some big repercussions of what's going on at the moment. And then, of course, we get into the Cable story and the emotional stakes for Cable, which are hitting home in ways that I did not expect. And then we get into it with Doug Ramsey. Uh, and it continues that Doug Ramsey storyline that's going on in here, that fabled cipher story that everyone has been so excited about. I think my pulley might go for best family drama of the week mm. because there are some really powerful moments in here. I think that's the magic of what's going on here in Tennis Swords in general is, yes, they're able to balance all of these things. Yes, there's so many storylines that they never forget. They always you know, balance so well. But there's also a human side, a, a personal side, a family side. There's love at the core of so much of these things that are going on. And in this issue, that manifests between Gene and Scott and Cable and so many others. It is really beautiful stuff. And then when you think that the story's over, when you think like, okay, wow, that's what that issue is going to be about. Nope. That wraps up. And then you just dive straight into something else. In this case, it is a big showdown that I think a lot of people have been waiting with bated breath for. And, you know, this is one of those things that's just sped by so fast. And next week we will be concluding Ten of Swords. And what a damn pleasure it has been. I got to say, I'm excited to see how this group will outdo themselves with the final three chapters because you just know they will. All right. Tucker, yes. all the books this week for Ten of Swords have truly solidified this storyline as a triple D, a ding-dang delight. Ding-dang delight. You know it. That is a, a ding-dang delight with a little trademark logo from h and right there for you folks. And that's what we have for individual issues on sale for you this week. Head out to your local comic shop and pick them up. And while you're there, check out what we have for print collections, which include Cable by Jerry Duggan, Volume 1, Daredevil Epic Collection, Last Rites, Empire, Captain America, and the Avengers, Excalibur by Teeny Howard, Volume 2, Hellions by Zeb Wells, Volume 1, Marvel 211 Masterworks, Volume 5, and Wolverine by Benjamin Percy, Volume 1. Yeah, some really great stuff in there. And of course, we have Marvel Unlimited, which is crushing it right now. So many great books available. And uh, again, reminder, if you missed the news a couple weeks ago, the books are hitting Marvel Unlimited three months after they hit comic shops and, and the uh, the Marvel Purchase app. So uh, this week, we've got a bunch of Empire issues, including Empire number five, Empire X-Men, uh, Marauders, X-Force, uh, Captain Marvel, so much more. Definitely check all those out. Now it is time for our reading club chat with Mr. Benjamin Percy. We're going to talk a bit about Ten of Swords. We're going to talk about X-Force. We're going to talk about Wolverine. In particular, we are talking about Wolverine Origins, a story which uh, kind of doesn't fully introduce Miramasa and the Miramasa Blade, which has been uh, important for Wolverine in Ten of Swords, but it really lets you see what it means to Wolverine in that storyline. Also, it's got art by Steve Dillon, so you're going to hear me freak out about <laughs> one of my favorite artists of all time on his chat with uh, Benjamin Percy. So uh, let's do that right now. Mm. 
Mr. Benjamin Percy, welcome to Marvel's The Pullist. How are you, my friend? Very good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's exciting because we were we were just talking with Josh Kassara, your compatriot on X-Force. In the middle of it, Tucker and I both realized, like, wait a minute, we've been doing these Reading Club episodes for months now, and we haven't had Ben Percy on the show. We're both loving what you're doing right now. Uh, and Tucker talks vociferously about your work oh, every shucks. time it pops up. Well, I'm looking forward to sinking my claws into this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're we're going to be talking about Ten of Swords and X-Force and Wolverine and what's going on right now. But also, you brought us uh, some cool stuff to talk about for Reading Club that ties into all of that as well. So we'll be talking about Wolverine Origins, the first five issues, I believe, of that run. Um, I ended up, because we had been going back and forth about Wolverine Origins and Endings, um, which first introduces the blade that Miramasa makes for Wolverine, or Wolverine Origins, that first five-issue arc. I ended up reading all of it, just because I was like, I got sucked back <laughs> into that stuff. Yeah. I was very excited. All the, all the carnage of the past. It's lovely to feast on. Ben, when you look back on Wolverine, I mean, obviously your work on the Wolverine podcast, doing a couple of seasons of that, which were incredible, huge fan of those. Um, and now you write the Wolverine main series as well as contribute to everything going on in tennis. So there's so much going on in the world of the mutants. Where did it all start with Wolverine specifically for you? Well, I mean, if we go way back for the deep cut, we're talking about, you know, when I'm five, six years old at the mercantile in Crow, Oregon, pulling Wolverine and X-Men off the spinner rack. Uh, but when it comes to working for Marvel, the first gig was the Wolverine podcast. Uh, I was to write up a pitch and I just went bonkers because there was no way I wasn't going to get this job. So I ended up writing, instead of a pitch, I wrote a Bible. It was probably about 60 pages long. And the subtext of it was, give this project to me or else. (laughs) And as a result of that Bible, I got the gig. I wrote the first season, then wrote the second season. And I have since then joined the X group, writing out both Wolverine and and X-Force. So I've been, you know, as corny as this sounds, I truly have been living a childhood dream come true lately. Just as you were talking about that, I flashed back to when we on Marvel.com, the entire team, did the announcement that you were going to be taking over a new Wolverine number one, telling a new story. And I remember... Ben Percy, if you can go on Google right now, listeners, and go back and find that announcement, gave one of the most anthemic, <laughs> epic statement that I could, you just feel it pulsating with the excitement, with the verb, with the energy of someone who, like you just said, is dying to sink their claws into this character in this series. And uh, it was one of my favorite things that I ever got to work on. It's so it, cool. He's my favorite comics character. So, I mean, how could I not do anything but howl about it? <laughs> I was thinking also about X-Force. And when we had the New York Comic-Con panel in 2019, which is just about a year ago, you're on the panel in the big room. We're talking about all the X-Books and it's exciting. And you say, this book is poison about X-Force. And I, Tucker and I, and we were just like, oh, this is the book. This is it. It was so exciting. I love putting poison in readers' eyes. And, you know, Joshua Kassar and I, from the very beginning, we've just talked about how 
X-Force has to have a hair metal soundtrack. It has to be nonstop <laughs> black ops mayhem. And it's not that it doesn't have a heart. It has, you know, we, we try to build up emotionally each and every one of these characters and give them really interesting emotional journeys to go on. But we have to have at least like three WTF moments per issue uh, to feel <laughs> satisfied with ourselves. Because you say hair metal, and to me, I, you know, I even think we talked about this at one point, Tucker. I was like, I, I hear stuff like Ride the Lightning era Metallica when, mm-hmm. you know, the crew is going off and getting in their missions. It's just like this <laughs> foreboding metal stuff. And, and you know, oftentimes Josh and I will be talking about, okay, this cover, this cover is definitely a GNR cover. <laughs> I hesitate to dive in so quickly, but, you know, speaking of X-Force stuff, It was shocking, you know, really to read those first, even the first whole arc because of how full throttle you guys were going on that, you know, everything going on with Domino, everything going on with so many of these characters that was just like, whoa, was that, you know, speaking of the Bible that you wrote for the Wolverine podcast, is that something that you build into, you know, a pitch for a book like X-Force is saying like, readers aren't going to be ready for this essentially? Well, you know, it was almost exactly two years ago that I got a text from Jonathan Hickman. I was walking into the Halloween reboot when he offered me <laughs> X-Force. We had talked a little bit before that, but he was like, I think, I think you'd kill it on X-Force. And I took that, you know, as a direct order. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it has been full throttle mayhem ever since. But the thing that readers will notice, too, is that you know, when it comes to you asking, is there a sort of Bible? Is there a larger superstructure? Yes. And what you'll come to understand, here we are. I mean, what did I, I just handed in issue 18 for X-Force. You, what you'll come to understand is that we've been seeding things from the very beginning. Small things that come to fruition later, right? Because we're playing a long game here. You know, there's something very novelistic about uh, the way that this series and Wolverine sort of intertwine. And this is seen in everything from what's happening with Quentin, when Quentin keeps going down and going down. That's there for a reason. That we're trying to earn something there. If you look at what's going on with Colossus, we're earning something there. Yes, there's full throttle. There's what you could call a volcanic burn going on in the foreground. Mm. But in the background, there's a slow burn as well that people will hopefully appreciate if they're in it for the long run. I love that because you you talk about the the books and and you know we're in the middle of Ten of Swords and you've been working on it for so long. It's like I, I keep going back to wait, what's going on with Colossus? What's going on with Quentin? What's mm-hmm. going on with Domino? What's going on with all these characters? Because that's all the chaos with Arako and the the Ten of Swords elements have been so top of brain that now that we're talking about, it, I'm like, oh yeah, there is all this gnarly stuff that's happening. What about the vampires? What's going on there? What about Omega Red? I'm like. Friggin' jazz. And the thing about, you know, when I when I consider this series, the architecture of the series, the blueprint of the series, what I've come to understand is that it's better with comics, I think anyway. And it's certainly played out here. Uh, to have those larger six-issue arcs or even 12-issue arcs in mind, sure, but instead to interrupt them constantly, right? And to create a sort of narrative turnstile. So that you move towards some sort of moment of emotion or physical peril and, and cut away from it, like the vampire story, cut away from it and go to something else before cycling back, build up to something with Domino, cut away from it and come back to it later. 
And in that way, you know, you don't have the sort of start, stop, start, stop, start, stop element. Instead, you have what you might consider to be somebody juggling flaming chainsaws. That's what X-Force is doing. You have a very rich background writing, you know, novels, writing short stories across media. Do you feel like these things come from the same muscle, regardless of what you're writing in what medium, or is it an entire different kind of shift of mindset? So, you know, if you're writing novels, there's so much real estate before you. If you're writing short stories, or even if you're writing comics, they're, they're much more crystalline and focused by comparison. And if you look at comics specifically, or some of these podcast episodes that I've written specifically, or TV episodes I've written specifically, there is what you might call story math, right? There's 20 pages, there's five to seven scenes. There's an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. There's a splash page that likely occurs within the first five pages, another splash page that likely occurs in the last five pages, right? And if you think about what Terrence Hayes, a poet, has to say about the difference between free verse and form poetry, like free verse versus a sonnet or a villanelle, he says that, you know, it's cool if you can break dance, but it's badass if you can break dance in a straight jacket. And comics are <laughs> break dancing in a straight jacket, right? Because of the constrictions on them and their design. Mm -hmm. And writing comics has made me a better novelist as a result. You know, obviously there's a learning curve. One of the things I did early on, though, when I started to get gigs was to just ask comic artists and comics writers, give me the best scripts you've ever worked on. I was curious about the different perspectives. And I studied and I studied and I studied and I broke them down. And then I would read comics that often the trades that oftentimes came with scripts in the back. And what I was trying to do was just figure out the geometry of this very specific type of storytelling, which tends to be more accelerated than you see in other mediums. Mm -hmm. Do you remember any of those scripts that you read? I, we, I've gotten yeah. a lot of questions over the years from, from fans, from prospective, you know, creators who are like, how do I do this? And I love that idea. Like you going right to the source and being like, what's the best, show me the best. How do I crack this? Yeah. I mean, I, I asked Jeff Johns, I was like, send me your best script you've ever written. I asked Scott Snyder, send me your best scripts. Send me your best pitches, too. You know, I asked Jeff Parker. I asked, uh, you know, Dan Jurgens. I asked all these different people in the industry to give me, people who I really respected, give me your best work. And oh. use that as a model. Because there isn't, you know, there isn't even a firm design on how to write comics. Everybody's scripts look different. And so what I wanted to do was sort of like figure out okay, what does this person's arsenal look like? What does this person's arsenal look like? And then sort of built my own arsenal as a result of that. Let's talk a little bit now about uh, the reading club stuff um, that we're talking about, because we all put together like this discussion about Wolverine origins, specifically around the blade that he has made by the swordsmith Miramasa. When you were starting to come together and with the other X writers about Ten of Swords, was this like instantly in your mind? How did it how did it come about to start thinking about bringing this blade into the story and and going back into the origins of it? Well, there's a few different answers to that. One, the math works out pretty easily. Wolverine plus sword equals Muramasa, right? And instantly, that's where everybody's head goes. But beyond that, if you think about theme. Right. And you think about this larger story that's being told with Ten of Swords. The sins of the past are catching up with the present. 
here is Araco, here is Krakoa. They're merging together. They're battling for control. And that's the same sort of story that you see in Wolverine. And when I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about Muramasa, um, I was thinking about just the sins of the past and how that so often carries into a Wolverine narrative and is certainly at front and center in Wolverine origins, right? Here you have a story that is about the burden of the past. It's about pain, right? Wolverine is always somebody who wears his scars on the inside instead of on the outside. And he's somebody too who is attempting to atone for what he's done out of self-hatred oftentimes. And all of these things are explored on a larger scale in Ten of Swords. You know, again, let's talk about the math of it all. Here is Wolverine. Here is a sword. Here is Muramasa. So when I initially pitched this to the room, when it was just, you know, in a very rough state of its early genesis, I was like, all right, part one, Wolverine fights ninjas. Part two, Wolverine goes to hell. <laughs> I remember I was like, done. <laughs> and and things got more granular from there, obviously. But the idea being that this was one of those stories where we travel back. And I, you know, one of the things I'm very aware of is that I don't want to be a greatest hits writer. You know, I'm trying to tip my hat to legacy while also putting my own unique stamp on a series. So going to Japan, going to hell has been done before. But how do you do that in such a way that it feels freshly forged, so to speak? And so Muramasa has perished. Wolverine is seeking him, has to follow this trail of clues, ultimately descends into hell where I was thinking, how can we step things up with the Muramasa blade since it's been destroyed? Like, how do we how do we put it together, you know, again? And why not use the greatest forge in all the worlds, the hell forge? to accomplish that, right? And why not make it live up to the name, the Muramasa blade, by making Muramasa's soul itself threaded into the metal. Let's talk about the creators on Wolverine Origins 1 through 5. Uh, this arc written by Daniel Way, who had a great run on uh, Wolverine as well as on Deadpool. Um, colors by Dan Kemp, letters by VCs Randy Gentile, and art by, aside from Jack Kirby, my all-time favorite artist, Steve Dillon. Yeah. Um, and man, I just uh, like I get upset that we lost Steve yeah. a couple of years ago. And he for a little personal thing, uh, when I left, I used to work at Wizard Magazine and uh, my two favorite characters are Modoc from us and Etrigan the Demon from DC and Steve Dillon being my favorite artist. The, the guys at Wizard, namely Ricky Purden, uh, who's one of my best friends, who we all know uh, is a talent guy at Marvel. He reached out to Steve, got to commission as a going away gift, Etrigan riding Modoc as like holding onto Modoc's hair in this amazing commission. And I remember Ricky telling me that Steve had never drawn Modoc before. So, and I don't know that he's ever drawn him since, or he, he had drawn him since. I may have the only drawing of Modoc by Steve Dillon. And uh, <laughs> it, it hangs up in my house now. Um, so going back to these issues here, reminded me just like how amazing an artist Steve Dillon was. And he do so much with yes. facial expressions and storytelling that like the acting of it all, 
um, is such a such an amazing mm-hmm. thing. And seeing him here, uh, in some ways, obviously very different, reminds me of Adam Kubert, who is you know one of your collaborators on Wolverine, and who is a legend in and of himself, and as a friend of mine as well. It's like there's certain things that some artists can do and convey so it seems so easily and uh what they what they put upon the page and letting them unleashed with an amazing writer uh when you see that come together boy oh boy it's a good time when you talk about adam and you know you can carry this over to josh kasara as well and 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 you look at steve's work like one of the things that they're able to do that's so exceptional is capture both those moments of high octane violence action and the quiet moments, right? There's so many moments in Wolverine Origins when Steve just has somebody take in information and no, there's no dialogue balloon. You just see the impact of that on, you know, on this, on this turn of events on their, in their face alone. That's so hard to pull off. When we look at issue one of Wolverine Origins, and for listeners, it's on Marvel Unlimited 2006. Do you remember your first time reading this? And and do you remember what struck you about it when you first dug in? Yeah, I remember reading, you know, in a blur, everything connected to House of M. Uh, And this is tangled up in that synaptic waste bin in my brain. And one of the things that revisiting it now, I really admired is the way that he brings together Nuke, Cap, Wolverine, all of whom are weapons utilized by others. And I think that that's interesting when you consider Wolverine, who's been used so many times before against his will, and how he is, unlike Nuke and unlike Captain America, nationless. But also when it comes to his sort of borderless cultural affinity, you know, he has married into Japan. He loved Silver Fox. All of those things are, are acknowledged in, in Wolverine Origins in these five issues. And he is, unlike these other two, a Ronin, right? He's somebody who's sort of the captain of his own ship and not, and not America. And as a result of that, he, even despite the fact that he's done the dirtiest deeds on behalf of our country, he's also willing in a finger snap to turn his back on it. I love how he's just his own his own island as a as a man. Yeah, the nuke part, man, just what a heartbreaker! Like yeah. giving an origin to nuke and having him tied so closely to Wolverine in such just messed up ways. It's great, but poof. and it's always great when you can have a moment where you pity somebody who's atrocious. When nuke gets revealed, I think it's the end of issue one, and there's a big splash of him, and you're like, oh no mayhem is is coming and you know my mind immediately goes back to like frank miller david munch kelly you know thinking about what's to come and and then that's reinvented right the pills are actually not uppers they're they're placebos that the this sort of like adrenaline fueled nightmare it's already there inside of him and he's gonna just get within an inch of destroying wolverine but no it it turns in such a way that he becomes just like this sad Frankenstein monster that, you know, you don't, you don't want the villagers with the pitchforks and the, and the flaming torches to get him. Something that we talk about on these reading club episodes often is 
the release dates, like the specific release dates of these issues. And issue number one is April 19th, 2006. And then we pretty much go monthly through the rest of these issues that we're talking about. And I'm always particularly fascinated by this time in American politics, this time in American like military history, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. And then always just trying to read through particularly the differences, the subtleties between Captain America and Nuke in this story. It's an interesting kind of triangle that they create with Wolverine in a way, and in a certain way, two sides of the same coin, at least as it applies to how they fly the flag. I was just curious about your read on not that in particular, but in terms of how you feel like you are informed by the present day moment, whether yeah, yeah. Uh, whether that is short stories that you wrote years and years ago, or whether that was something you wrote last year, just in general, do you feel like that's something you're conscious of? Or is that something that is just in the water that you drink every day? So how could it not be? And it's not really conscious, but uh, of course it's there. No, I'm, I'm always aware of this. And especially as somebody who writes a lot of horror, right? The great horror stories, a lot of great fantasy speculative stories in general are born out of the cultural moment. Frankenstein is born out of the industrial revolution and the fear of man playing God, the fear of science and technology. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is born out of the Red Scare and an enemy living invisibly among us. Godzilla is born out of post-atomic anxieties. Look at what Jordan Peele is doing with racial divisions in the country, political divisions in the country right now. So yes, you look at a story like this, Wolverine Origins, you look at what I was writing at that time, I've got a short story called Refresh, Refresh that was kind of my breakout story. If any comics nerds are interested in going back in time, it's uh, available on the Paris Review website. Um, but that story, you know, one of the things that inspired it was, I remember reading the newspaper, I was living in Milwaukee at the time, and I was reading the newspaper in Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and on the front page, there was like an article about Paris Hilton. And I flipped through you know, the paper and they were like buried deep on page six was like a sidebar about a National Guard unit where everybody in a single small town who had gone overseas was dead. They all died in an ambush. And so I was just thinking about the, the cavity that would have left behind on that town and also just feeling like how, you know, you walk into Starbucks and people are sipping their mocha frappuccinos or you walk by a park and people are tossing a Frisbee while on the other side of the world, people are being blown to meaty bits. Like I just wanted to try and elevate that moment and pay people pay attention to that moment more. And so I wrote this story about the effect of the war on a bunch of sons who had lost their fathers, the kind of town that I read about in the newspaper. Yeah, and that, that carries forward into the right now. Look at what's happening with Dawn of X. If you look at what we're doing, here is a group that has been marginalized, that has been disenfranchised over and over through the years. And now mutants have risen up against xenophobia and said, that's enough. And you see this same sort of thing happening in the world right now when it comes to everything from the Me Too movement to Black Lives Matter. So the whole Dawn of X is doing exactly what you're talking about. And I think that Wolverine Origins is as well. Mm. And that it's about uh, confused notions of nationhood and patriotism. Um, you know, the, the arc sort of ends in this beautiful way that Wolverine like 
has to break free of his own nature and stop himself from murdering his friends and loved ones and even the the guy he's trying to stop and ends up giving the one thing that can ultimately forever kill him to one of the only people he can trust. And I love that moment where Wolverine gives Cyclops the Muramasa blade. That's such a neat way to almost end the arc. And then it goes off into the the sort of beginning revelations about who Dokken is and that he's alive. But the blade, leaving it there, that's such a great touch. But so is so is the revelation about Dokken because it ties in perfectly to what we're talking about. And that is that continuation of this constant theme in Wolverine, which is the inheritance of violence, the legacy of violence. The worst case scenario in this story is not that Wolverine will be caught up in the machine again. It's not that he'll be mind wiped and become once again a tool of the government. The worst case scenario is that they'll get his son. It takes what we assume to be the stakes of the situation and just cranks it up to 11. Uh, reading this reminded me of the end of Uncanny X-Force by Rick Remender and uh, Phil Noto and just the finality of the story between Wolverine and Dokken. But thankfully, with the dawn of X, right. we, we've got folks like Dokken back and, and he has a role in, in X-Factor. Um, we do want to wrap up here, but is there any place for docking in the wolverine book will we see that or any other close relationships for wolverine coming up well sure i mean one of the things we talked about from the very beginning is that this is a new dawn for wolverine and he finally sees in krakoa the possibility of having a country he can call his own and having a grounded sense of friendship family and even though it's hard to believe happiness right (laughs) and so there's that moment in one of my favorite issues, when we introduced the Green Lagoon, or Joshua Kassar did that incredible spread. And in that issue, we have this moment of Wolverine family bonding, you know, where they're playing a kind of Russian roulette at the Green Lagoon while <laughs> drinking from their tiki cups. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's hard to watch, but, you know, the family that plays together slays together. And <laughs> yes, I have plans for bringing the Wolverine family together more and more as uh, as this progresses. Hell yeah. Good. My last cue would be, I think it actually feeds in perfectly what you're saying uh, there about the family that plays together slays together. And I relate that directly to the incredible group of artists, writers, creators, editors who are working in the world of X right now. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that from everything from the X Slack through to working with your fellow creatives that you've worked on. on, yeah. Well, on I mean, Wolverine I, I, with. Yeah. I haven't been looking at the tab that's on my screen while we're talking. It's there. <laughs> the X Slack is open. And I'm guessing that there have been approximately 50 posts since uh, we started chatting. Uh, that's how active we are on that. And we're on that all day. There, there's probably 200 messages posted a day to that. We also get on to a Zoom call virtually every Friday and talk for two to three hours. Wow. And what we're doing here is no different than what we've been doing from the very beginning when we got together for that initial summit, which is we're telling individual stories, but they are all part of this larger story. There's a kind of tapestry being woven together here. And it's the best collaboration I've ever been a part of. And I feel incredibly lucky to be partnered with artists like Adam Kubert and Joshua Kassara, who we too 
are in touch by text every day or by phone call every day. And I hope to work with those guys for the rest of my career in some capacity. That's great. Amen to that. We hope so too. Ben, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for chatting, sharing a little bit of that uh, wonderful Wolverine love with us. Got it, Bob. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Good bub to you. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. Yeah, take care, guys. Folks, I hope you had some real high-quality headphones on for that one to enjoy the triple Ds of Benjamin Percy's voice, but not just that, his incredible stories, his storytelling, his insights into these characters, which so clearly means so much to him, um, if not only because he is the best uh, example of a real-life Wolverine that we might have on planet Earth, uh, but what a pleasure to speak to. Uh, so much fun and, and so interesting. All right, that about wraps us up for this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marquez, Jorge Estrada, MR Daniel, and Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And no, he did not make the cut for Ten of Swords because he's a weak man. <laughs> I'm Ryan. Yeah, straight up. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe. He's not that weak, I'm sure. He's I mean, got kids. He's like a, he's a normal guy. He's normal. Tough. Yeah.